one of the things that I find to be really useful is making sure we're all clear on the North Star. Like when you think about three years from now, five years from now, like what's the strategic exit of this business? Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 74, and today's guest is Rose Hamilton. Rose is CEO and founder of Compass Rose Ventures. She has extensive consumer product company experience, having worked for brands such as Best Buy and Taylor and Chico's. She's now helping brands unlock their own growth potential. We did this show in mid-April, a steamy 85 degrees in New Jersey. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rose Hamilton. Rose is the founder and CEO of Compass Rose Ventures, a CPG growth advisory company helping founders and investors of growing consumer brands scale and optimize revenue and profitability from startup through funding and exit. For the past 20 plus years, Rose has worked with and advised more than 50 consumer companies, large and small, including PetSmart, The Vitamin Shop, Nutrafol, and MEND. Rose has helped raise over $70 million in funding and generate over $1 billion in additional revenue. As a digital and marketing trailblazer, Rose is an expert in the vitamins and supplements, beauty and pet categories, where she has architected omnichannel brands, guided the cross-functional growth planning process, and optimized marketing plans to adapt to the constantly changing consumer landscape. Rose, welcome to the show. I'm a huge fan, Mark. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining me. Uh, as we, we, were, we were chatting, uh, we're recording this on the 13th of April. We both happen to be in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, and uh, it's about 85 degrees. So uh, we, we are roasting in New Jersey. <laughs> I'm not going to complain after a harsh winter. Yeah. So, you know, one of the uh, things that we like to do uh, as we get started with the show uh, is get some background uh, from each of the guests, kind of the first story. And as I, I've said to uh, throughout many, many shows, it's so interesting how what we in many cases wind up doing in our careers there was some foreshadowing that you could see uh early in your life uh we're going to find out in a second whether or not your early life and your upbringing had anything to do with what you do today oh i think it definitely did so i am an only child and i was born to two teachers um one was a big thinker and highly conceptual and the other was a facilitator in the school district. And so her organizational skills came out. So I am absolutely a blend of both of my parents. And as such, when I was young, I always had a passion of writing and performing and really loved writing stories. So I thought for sure I'd go into journalism. And then the clues really came once I got into high school. So I was working for JCPenney in retail. And as I was working in the evenings after school, I would get bored. Um, as usual. And so I would go and find the products that were not selling 
And I took it upon myself to go and start making outfits on mannequins and mixing and matching things together. And the GM, the general manager of those two departments, absolutely loved it. And it was so much fun because he'd say, oh, look, this wasn't moving. Now it's moving. And I get to see the numbers. And then one day I got in big trouble because the head of visual merchandising didn't like it so much. And apparently there were lots of things I needed some correcting on. So she said, listen, if you're going to hang out and do this kind of work, I'm going to teach you. And so I got the awesome blend of seeing the numbers and the math and the science, but then the art of being able to figure out visually how to pull things together and design them. So I would say the art and the science came together for me at a, at a high school age, and then it pivoted right into my journalism and business background. Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, how there is an art and science in in what we do. Um, you know, I've spent most of my career in catalog and and digital marketing. And, you know, because so much of it is determined by the numbers, you sometimes forget that there's a hunch and a gut, you know, after, you know, so long you build up an experience and there is an art to interpreting numbers. Absolutely. And to storytelling, too. The two really do go hand in hand. Yeah, and we'll get to that uh, a bit you know, as we talk about what you're doing today. But uh, you you also mentioned uh, in in some of your notes that you're a podcast junkie. Um, <laughs> are you listening to uh, crime shows or or what? No, I just I absolutely love podcasts, and I would say my day begins with this really cool podcast called the New the Newsworthy. Sorry, the Newsworthy. And it's 10 minutes, it's quick, it's fast, it's fun, and easy to digest. And so I found that one to be incredibly useful, have listened to her for years, you know, and then there's others that I absolutely love. Like there's, I would say the godfather of podcasting is Brendan Bruchard, and he has his motivation podcast, he has marketing and influence podcast, and I just love listening to him. And then there's some others that are really fascinating to me, like the social media examiner that gets into the tactics of marketing. And he brings on guests that are really, really focused and they're focused on whatever the topic subject matter is super relevant. And I just thoroughly enjoy it. And then I'd say the other one that I'm loving these days is called the goal digger, um, Jenna Kusher. And she is talking about the life of an entrepreneur and building her business, everything from personal development to professional and what she's learning along her journey. And I just find her so fascinating and interesting. So that's a handful of a few, but my my library is pretty extensive. It kind of covers all areas, but those are my favorites. Oh, thanks for sharing. That's good. I always, uh, uh, when I'm working out or walking or whatever, always looking for something new to listen to. Uh, so thanks for that. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind of your early uh, career in e-commerce right around the same time that I was uh, starting at Brooks Brothers and uh, heading up the uh, general manager of their direct uh, business. Uh, that was a combination of catalog and a very nascent e-commerce business. Um, you were at a business that I happen to, to also know, Wilson's Leather. So tell us just a, a bit about your experience there. Sure. Maybe also when that was. So that was one of my first jobs right out of college. I had gotten my MBA by then. And it was at a time when the internet was up and running, certainly, but it was more like a digital catalog at the time. And I didn't know the first thing about retail. So it was a fabulous entry for me because I was surrounded by merchants and I got to be a little entrepreneur, if you will, because no one knew much about the internet and it was all being figured out and there was no rule book. 
And so the fun for me was that I got to touch everything from product to creative and design, advertising, models, photo shoots. It was so, I loved that job. It was so much fun. Never mind the sample sales that were really actually pretty cool. But the best part was that I had access to data that no one else had. So no one understood analytics or that it was even a thing. And so it was one of the first tools I put in. And it was Cormetrics back then. And I had a COO who was very much sponsoring this little baby business amongst this huge retail enterprise. And I started to show him what I was able to see. And he, the light bulb clicked for him because all he'd ever had was traditional retail analytics. So we were doing really fascinating things like pulling search terms out, seeing what the demand was, putting online only products, things that would start to indicate demand and what could potentially be done in stores. And so I just found the power of data right there, right out of retail and making the connection between merchants with gut instinct and being able to actually show them consumer behavior and what consumers were searching for. We went so far as to build direct marketing, build CRM infrastructure. They didn't have a catalog. And we also then started to use some of the rich data to reorganize the stores in walkthroughs. And even thinking about demand, being able to capture early demand and being able to move things around to make sure we were capturing things in such a seasonal business. It's very key to know when people are starting to search for things and how to navigate. So it was a, it was a really great experience, a wonderful starting point for me. Were you addressing uh, the mannequins again or did they <laughs> keep you away from the mannequins? Well, <laughs> technically, I was dressing kind of sort of putting together outfits for the models. And so maybe it's more like the real models as opposed to the mannequins. No, we had real experts who knew knew a lot more about fashion than me. Let's put it that way. The head merchant was fabulous at that. As you think about analytics, you know, you mentioned it here and in all the businesses that you've you've been part of, uh, you know, there's a thread. I mean, there's lots of different threads, regardless of the industry that you're in. It's about product and the storytelling that you mentioned, but there is a lot of analytics uh, involved. Are there a few analytics, uh, a few metrics that you might put out for the listeners and say, look, if you're involved in an e-commerce business or any kind of a direct-to-consumer business, you know, the two or three things like you feel like you need to know uh, like clockwork every single day about your business? Absolutely. In classic retail businesses, I think the metric that gets overlooked the quickest, especially in a fast fashion business like Wilson's, was really lifetime value. And so knowing that lifetime value all the time is so important because it's how you can determine how much you can afford to spend on new customer acquisition. So at all times, trending and watching lifetime value and really putting strategies around growing that with retention and with average order value increases and thinking about your mixes with your categories, that's one piece. And then the other piece is new customer acquisition, knowing that number and where it's trending and being able to see the split between organic versus paid. Because businesses that get too heavily, as we all know, involved in the paid side and don't build the brand and the organic side wind up not doing so well. And if that's not being watched carefully with the relationship of cost per acquisition to organic and paid, it might not get caught until much farther down the line. And you might not be filling your funnel fast enough and you might have a slowdown in business. So those are the two most important. And then I'd say the last one is really the net promoter score piece, because you got to make sure that your customers are happy and are they going to be willing to share your brand with others and be an advocate for you? That's really, it's a lagging indicator, but it's an important one and one that I like to see all the time, being able to watch that. And then the last one, 
is social sentiment. Everything from scouring those reviews to being able to look at just in general, what are people saying on Reddit about your business and just doing some, you know, looking around competitive landscape, looking around, but seeing how you're stacking up as a brand is very important in the digital space. Love it. Let's move to a very different business than leather and certainly some of the other apparel businesses. And I think it's an interesting uh, comparison. Uh, you spent quite a bit of time at Best Buy. Talk a little bit about you know, going from apparel into electronics, also going from a business that, um, you know, like a, an electronics, you know, retailer where so much of their product, almost all of their product is also available in so many other places. And it wasn't perhaps back then as prominent as it is today to be able to buy the same Samsung TV online in 50 places as well as in, in Best Buy. But how are you thinking about that when you got there? Geez, I'm selling this. The other guy is selling this too. How do I compete? Well, it, it's a, an excellent question, and I'll share with you why. Because when I came on board, we were in a place called customer centricity. So there was an enormous amount of money and investment. That's also why I was so excited to work for the brand, because I would have exposure to so much data, so big. I mean, the online business was 700 million when I started, and just the data sets, the personalization capabilities by knowing, and also the breadth of categories were so fascinating to me. So when I jumped in, I was fortunate enough because I decided, again, to be a guinea pig, <laughs> which I love doing. I was attached to the e-commerce business, but I was in category management as my first assignment out of the gate. So I was working on cameras, um, digital cameras, and all the things that go along with it. And it was classified as a sharing memories domain. So anything involved in capturing a memory was in it, primarily cameras and all the things that go along with it. So I was embedded in the retail side of the house so that we could exchange information better. But I was running my own business, choosing my own assortment, putting online only products together, but needed to partner with them. And I think it was one of the best, smartest decisions because coming out of it, I was able to start asking questions like, well, once somebody gets a camera, what are they going to do with it? What's the next thing we think that they should buy? I knew nothing about the technology space. So it was actually a blessing. I didn't know anything. Because I just kept applying the traditional marketing thinking, data and analytics, showing what we were learning. And there too, it got really fascinating because we needed to, we figured out we needed an experience. So perfect story and an example is that I could see in my extended online assortment that I had, cameras, lenses that were over $1,000. The stores couldn't afford to do it. So we were the little testing lab for a couple brands that couldn't get in. And as I was watching who the customers were, it was fascinating to see we were actually attracting pros. So not just the everyday sharing memories, mama. So being able to share that information led to saying, well, wait a minute, if we can sell these many at a thousand bucks online, what could we be doing in our stores? And so the ability to then say, okay, not only that, but what if we gave people advice on how to actually use the camera? What if we told them what they're gonna need next? What if we started to build workshops around this sort of thing? So they were onto the Apple-esque type thinking during the time that I was there. It was very expensive, so it was cost prohibitive in a lot of spaces, but nonetheless, just the notion of building content and being thoughtful around personalization and the experience and the education that you can deliver mm -hmm. electronically, even if it's only through email. But we did do some things around videos. And the other thing I would say that was unique, like what do you do when everybody else sells it too, 
was we got behind the blue shirts. And it was one of my favorite things that we did there was put a huge campaign around the expertise around the education. When you have any questions, you come on in to Best Buy or come visit us online and we will help you. And so that service side of the blue shirts and getting them educated and really using them as a tool to our advantage, using them in the press, using them all over the place was really a big piece because it was all about the customer experience and about the content and the things that we were sharing that was a little unique and different than if you were buying something from a Walmart, as an example. Very different at that point in time. Fascinating. Very interesting. And then some time in apparel space, Chico's and Taylor. And, you know, we, we, we won't have time to touch on, on both of them, but, you know, thinking about, you know, kind of similar businesses in the sense that they're private label target audience, you know, maybe back then and Taylor uh, perhaps was more tailored clothing and perhaps uh, a bit more uh, businesswoman, but I, I, I'm not sure you can uh, guide me on that, but similar kinds of, of demographic and, and challenges, I imagine. But again, very different than what you were doing in electronics. So why the move there? And if you if you think back to it, what were one or two of the things that were just so much different that you experienced going back into apparel from what you were dealing with at, at a Best Buy? Well, because, you know, T-shirts and tops and apparel, it's there's so many choices. What attracted me to Chico's, and there's actually three brands underneath Chico's, Chico's, White House Black Market, and Soma Intimates. And each were at a different stage in their maturity. Soma Intimates was a baby brand. White House Black Market was modernizing middle, middle market. And then the real legacy brand was Chico's. And so each of them had a slightly different market. Soma crossed over with Chico's quite a bit. And what was attractive to me was how Chico's was storytelling. So there is a theme here because Chico's stood alone on its own long before I joined them because they were so careful in their catalog space, brilliant catalogers. Unfortunately, the online experience, exciting for me though, um, was like a digital catalog and it was treated as such. So the opportunity was to use all that real estate digitally to tell the story. And so the storytelling part and the special nature of designing products and clothing, these designers would go all over for inspiration. So teasing out that story about why is their top going to be different than someone else's? Like what was the origin behind why this piece got created for the collection this season? So there was some really unique things that we were able to do within it. And I'd say one other quick thing I would touch on is when I arrived, one of my favorite things to share is that the retail stores absolutely did not like Ecom. Why? Because all these returns were coming. So I went and tried to make best friends with the head of the field organization. She wanted not, she was clear. I, I'm not going to talk to you about this. You just bring me returns. It comes out of my sale. It was a thing. So I made it my mission to become best friends with her and go and have coffee with her as often as I could. Finally, she created a little happy hour for me with her ladies who were in her very special ladies, her GMs. And she said, we have a problem with these returns. If you can help me figure out how to make it better online so they don't show up in store, then you're talking. So I went and listened, turned on a recorder, spent an evening with the ladies. They told me all about their fit issues. I then said, why don't we create a pant fit guide? I need your help to do it though, because I don't know anything about that. I need your help. And they all helped. It was a big collaborative process. And so after that, the long story short is the head of the field not only created videos for us that were unique, like scarf tying sorts of things. She wrote a book 
that became a piece of the brand. And she also got her own online only assortment that was merchandised in the stores only. So once we figured out the value of the multi-channel, omni-channel customer, we had them going back and forth. So very different because I had more of the storytelling impact there than I had. I had to create it in electronics, but here it was embedded in and oh, there was so much rich territory to play with there. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, our listeners obviously uh, can't see that I'm laughing or smiling while you're talking about, um, you know, one channel, not liking the other channel. You know, I, I've been at this for a while. So as I mentioned, you know, I spent a lot of time in the catalog business and then, you know, when the web became you know more prominent, um, I can't, tell you how many conversations we had with the the cataloger people all right who thought that you know and and i understand you know they thought that you know the the internet was going to cannibalize their business which it did um, and was going to put catalogs out of business paper companies printers out of business you know all of that stuff even when i was at brooks brothers you know we had full price and factory outlet stores we had catalog and all three channels hated one another until such time and there was this come to moment when you know you get everybody in the same room and you educate them on the fact that the best customers are really the ones that are you know shopping across channel they're multi-channel shoppers and you know then when you know we we pulled back uh, on some catalog mailings you know the store people came running into my office what happened to all of our traffic it's like well this is what happens when we don't mail catalogs right so you should be thankful that the catalog exists so there was a lot of that and and i totally get it the devil's in the details you probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. One of the, you know, the threads, you know, in all the businesses that you've been in, and you kind of touched this on, on this a bit, is acquiring new customers. And we all have a lot of challenges, you know, right now in acquiring new customers. Um, when you work with clients um, in your consulting uh, business, how are you helping them think through what they can, you, you mentioned this, what they can afford to pay for those customers? And, and frankly, where are they getting all these new customers from? Fundamental to almost every brand I touch is taking a good, hard look at who do you think your target customer is? And I know it sounds very basic, but again, when you're so busy living in your business, you oftentimes do lose touch with what's in the hearts and minds that's going to be relevant to that core customer. So I will spend time first there, making sure we're all clear on who is the target and Funniest of things, there's a particular brand I was working with that really focused on male, even though they have a female side of the house, but because it was natural instinct. And once we looked at the math and the numbers behind how much of a population they're missing, because they're really not catering much to the female, it opened up an entirely new market. And I find that all over with clients is that really when you go in and take a look at competitive landscape, what's everybody else doing and how, who are you trying to target? Then after that, it really becomes refreshing the messaging in many cases, because let's face it, if you've got the wrong target and you don't have the right message or one of those two is wrong in the equation, 
you're just wasting your advertising spend. And, and many people will say, well, let's just go, let's spend more money, spend more money. And my answer is slow down for you know, a hot second here. Give me six weeks to just get in there, do some customer research, really take a look at everything and think about repositioning on some things. And so that then helps to reduce cost per acquisition because usually out of that, we find we're missing organic in a big way because there's too much dependency on paid. So then a great content strategy needs to be created that supports that brand house, if you will, and really then allows opening up, creating content that's relevant, that attracts the right people and retention ready acquisition strategies, which means thinking about once you get them in the door, how far has a brand progressed to really optimize their communications channeling right after they've entered them into the brand. And that sometimes gets overlooked. And even, especially with vitamins and supplements brands, the education that goes in the box, those are all things that if you can get your lifetime value up and you can get retention up, it puts less pressure on acquiring new customers and you're doing it with messaging that's much more relevant. And so I try to be thoughtful about the approach in it and not just going straight to, well, let's just rejigger how we're spending money, but let's go listen to the customer, make sure our messaging is right, Go through that customer journey and make sure that we've got all the right pieces along the way to help that customer feel that we're adding value in a unique and differentiated way. There's a very common belief that the cost to um, retain somebody is is less than the cost of acquiring somebody brand new to the business. Um, Do you believe uh, that that's the case? I've seen the numbers prove that. So it really does have support which is exactly why, especially in a time like now where funding might be harder to get, you might not have that big check to go out and spend as much as you need to to hit your sales numbers. It becomes even more important to be able to focus on that retention strategy because if you can really surprise and delight those customers and give them value add, they'll stick with you. And if you ask them for user-generated content, you get people doing things on your behalf, selling your brand on your behalf, that definitely helps as well. One of the retention plays that you know many businesses have developed over the years and continue are loyalty programs. Uh, you've had some loyalty programs in some of the businesses that you've been part of. Uh, Vitamin Shop, I know, had a very large uh, loyalty program. Talk a little bit how that plays into it. Um, and you know, it's it's sure you're going to, I think you're going to agree. It's not just about having the program. It's how do you engage the customers to believe there's value in the loyalty program? Spot on, Mark, spot on. And I think when I, when I joined and spent time with the vitamin shop, there was quite a bit of focus, like majority of the database was in the loyalty program. And as we took a look at it and took a step back, I was able to apply some of the thinking around community and around engagement and recognize that there's a lot more we can be doing beyond just points. And so quite a bit of the energy and effort expanded the thought process, even though in everyone's mind, a loyalty program is points-based, we needed to really understand, well, what other value is there? We have in some stores, nutritionists, as an example, who can advise. And so it wound up morphing its way into, again, more personalization. But as we build the profiles of all of our customers, We wound up building out an app that would enable the nutritionists, so to speak, not all of them were, but would enable a seamless experience where when people would have challenges or issues or conditions and they're trying to 
get some answers to it, we were able to, with the live pads, empower people to take a little survey and recommend products. And that's a value add. You weren't necessarily getting that at GNC or anywhere else. So by being a part of the vitamin shop tribe, so to speak, as opposed to just a points loyalty program, I get access to a lot more, which makes me want to share my information with you and stick with you and put my products on auto delivery with you and, and you know, always come to you as the source, the trusted source. Um, so that was really, really, I think, a way of taking loyalty to the next level and thinking we're really building a movement here and the movement will be higher than the products we sell. And that's what people will care about is joining the movement. And then, of course, we sell products along the way. Sounds so simple when we just talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> Years in the making. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Compass Rose Ventures. Uh, what your thinking was when you formulated the business, and you know, talk a little bit about you know the, the kinds of problems that your clients come to you to help them solve. Yes. So when I was spending time at the Vitamin Shop, I got an opportunity to meet so many interesting founders. And what I found was many of these founders were really strong on the scientific side, the product side. And when I would sit down and have a conversation with them and they would express and explain their brand, it was amazing the stories that they would tell. And But then I would look at their website or I would you know, look at their marketing cloud and I'll say to myself, but that doesn't show up. That message is completely missing. And all these people you could be, teach, you could be reaching um, and making your brand more visible if you got the story out. And so the more I thought about it, I just got a calling that said, I love building direct-to-consumer businesses. I love helping founders and investors. And at the end of the day, strategy is all about making the right decisions. So since I've been an operator for so long and in all aspects of the business, I could really be a value by pulling my A-team around the table and being able to deploy whatever is needed to help these founders and investors make good decisions and really build out their direct-to-consumer strategy and or retail. Because in some cases, someone's in retail, they want to go direct-to-consumer, or they might be direct-to-consumer and want to think about a pop-up shop or some new way of conducting commerce that's more physical in its nature. So we specialize in being able to help brands that are growing um, and emerging, and they're kind of stuck and they're not able to quite scale so being able to go in and help them when they have limited resources has been a real expertise, I think, and a value that's needed right now, especially at a time when it's harder and harder to grow. What, what do you find? Are there any uh, consistencies in, you, know, you say that they're stuck. Are they stuck because they're lacking capital? Are they stuck because they don't know how to broaden their uh, addressable market? You know, what, what do you kind of see? I see the teams are too small and they can't yet quite afford a full C-suite yet. And so because they're emerging and they're growing, they're usually getting ready for Series A, have just gotten Series A, or they're on their way to B. So they're somewhere in that growth cycle. And so one of the biggest challenges with scale and growth there is enough arms and legs. But I think the other challenge that we see is knowing which things to be focused on. And that is strategy is all about the choices one makes and how you spend your time and how you organize the chaos is really important. So being able to help put in a little bit of structure around decision-making and where to focus has been really important for each of these, these groups so that they make sure that they've got a clear roadmap and, and giving them some compasses to help make some of those decisions. And I think 
really helping them understand the other thing that will oftentimes prevent scale is the performance mindset can be so strong that it's missing the other side of the equation, which is who are the creators? What's the public relations outreach that could be done? How do you amplify your story in unique ways where everything old is new again in some ways, but it's not all just performance advertising. And there's exposure to so many new platforms, figuring out even which ones of those will help you actually get to the right core customer and then figuring out what type of content actually works is another challenge that I find. And being able to help give some compass around how you're gonna create the creative becomes important too, because that's just as important as the media. And that content then can go in paid and organic. And I think that's a real, it's, it's the magic when it's all working together as one big flywheel. You know, I, I spend a lot of time, um, similar, uh, it sounds like to you, not exactly the same kind of work, um, but spending a lot of time with early stage businesses and uh, probably earlier stage than what you're talking. But the one theme that comes up in, in talking to these folks is they never understood, you know, they, they knew their business, they, they knew they were going to make mistakes. They never quite understood how difficult it was and how much time it took to raise money. And, you know, you hear that time and time again uh, from early stage businesses. So true. I would echo that. And especially now and the horizon on how soon you think you're going to get the funding. It's almost like you need to tack on several, several more months because the market is just so different right now. And also being profitable is so important now. And so that's the other part is it's, it's really helping with the optimization because, you can spend a lot of money, but making sure that you've got the money to be spread out over time before funding comes in becomes key. I talk a lot about the shiny object syndrome and that kind of, you know, what you talked about with the the founders, how you prioritize things. And I think this goes whether you're a early stage business or you're a very mature business. So many things come at you uh, that you want, you know, that seem interesting. You want to give a shot to how do you help your clients think through, you know, how to avoid putting time and effort into everything that comes in front of them and focusing on those things that are really going to move the needle? You know, what I find most effective is making sure that there's clarity across the entire team. And I mean, you can have a team as small as five and have people be in silos and not necessarily on the same page with what they're spending their time on. People move so very fast. And so one of the things that I find to be really useful is making sure we're all clear on the North Star. Like when you think about three years from now, five years from now, like what's the strategic exit of this business? Do we keep it for a long time? Like what are we trying to accomplish at the highest of level? And in order to then, once we've landed that, the putting in an operating system that can really support making sure there's the focus remains on what are the five to seven most important things you need to be, everybody on the team needs to be focused on. So that as different opportunities come up, you can flex and say, okay, how's that going to help on the five to seven initiatives? Like, where does it live? And then putting the discipline in on that with the quarterly planning, the weekly planning, doing some project planning. So putting the discipline in to make sure that when the new shiny objects come up, there's a pipeline and an approach to decide, should we jump or not? before everybody's jumping and changing directions and it gets confusing. And then you feel like you're just not making the progress that you want to make. Yeah. Well, lots to go, uh, lots to think about uh, as these businesses uh, try to grow. 
Well, uh, we're ending the, the uh, getting to the end of our time together. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, we do this uh, little two-minute drill at the end of the show. Um, seven questions, one word answer. Ready? Ready. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Hint. Favorite app on your phone? Active. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Fleet Feet, but in the store first. They fit my foot, and then I went online. So use both, actually. Cross channel, got to love it. Uh, something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Well, that's an easy one. Sitting still, a.k.a. patience. <laughs> that's a uh, consistent theme I hear. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Woof Tracks. It's an app that gives every time you walk back to your local charity that you get to choose. Oh, I like that one. Okay. Uh, we do a lot of walking, so that uh, that would be very good. Um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? One superpower. Simplifying the complex. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? Health. Okay. Uh, where can people reach out to you on social media, Rose, if they choose? You can find me on LinkedIn and you can find lots of content there as well. And I'm happy to have you reach out to me via DM. And you can also visit my website too. Okay, great. Hey, this was really fun. Um, sorry to keep you inside on such a uh, warm, beautiful day. Uh, maybe now you can uh, get you can get outside and enjoy the weather. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Rose Hamilton for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, know your metrics. In every business, there are things that you're measuring that will help guide your success. You need to know them like your own name. Of course, you cannot know all of them all the time, but make sure that you and your team know which are those most critical metrics that you can recite when asked. What we measure, we can improve upon, so know those metrics. Number two, collaboration. This is something that almost every guest speaks about. Whether you're the most junior or the most senior member of your team, and regardless of whether you prefer working alone or not, being able to successfully collaborate with other members of your team is critical to success. Reach out to those people who are in other departments, find out about the challenges that they're dealing with, and see if there's something you can do together to improve the outcomes for your business. And number three, the North Star. Not a phrase new to my listeners, but something you want to understand. Perhaps you're part of the senior team and you're responsible for establishing the North Star. But even if you're not, be sure that you fully understand the goals of your business and where you're headed strategically. You cannot achieve this target if everyone is not clear on where you're headed and what success really means. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Yeah.